As the curtain goes up on Esther 6, things look bleak for the people of God. The highest official in the land, I'm recapping in case you're just now joining us or if you haven't been here, the highest official of the land, Haman, has plotted with state sanction to destroy all the Jews of Persia in a single day. Unbeknownst to everyone except Mordecai, Esther, the queen, is Jewish. And last week in chapter 5, she approached the king. Now she has a plan to ask for clemency for her people. And while the king seemed willing to grant any request she had, saying, even up to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled, she has yet to request anything of the queen, the only of the king. The only thing she asked for was to come to a feast the next day. So, the day before, she throws a feast. The king and Haman are at it. The next day, she's to throw another feast. The king, the king and Haman will, be alike, will alike be at together again. Chapter 6 opens the evening after the first feast. Now recall, as we've studied the book of Esther... We're noting that we as exiles who live far from home have much in common with the people of God living as exiles in ancient Persia. And if there's a word to describe Esther chapter 6, it would be this, reversal. Reversal. Chapter 6 is all about reversal. In fact, it's rescue by reversal. We're going to see one of the most unlikely rescues in the whole Bible. As exiles, many of our most dramatic rescues will not seem very dramatic. We, like they, are often rescued by a surprising array of radically mundane and average events. In Esther, the rescue doesn't come by the edge of flaming swords above, or heavenly chariots descending, or fire coming down from the sky, or the dispatch of angel armies, but the means of rescue happens by sleeplessness. The reversal begins. Look at verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, literally, this says, sleep fled from the king. The book of memorable deeds was not exactly riveting reading. And that may, be, may have been the exact reason he requested that somebody would come and read it. So they are going through the chronicles or the book of memorable deeds, reading it. His attendants are reading it. These are chronicles of forgotten deeds that were kept for posterity that nobody really referenced. That's why he's having it read. Or maybe it could be that he was musing on Esther's unspoken request. He could have been looking over the last five years she had been queen to see if something was missing that was obvious. We don't know, but we do know he could not sleep and he consults this book. Verse 2. And it was found, written, how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the house, the, the threshold, and who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor 
or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Now, this is the height of irony, right? We know from last week that Mordecai erects a massive gallows with the express intent of hanging Mordecai upon it. Haman, I should say. Haman builds a gallows so that he can hang his arch enemy, Mordecai, on the top of these gallows. All that was left to do was for Haman to come in and get royal approval for the execution of Mordecai. Before Haman could get royal approval to execute Mordecai, Mordecai's name comes up in the forgotten annals of Persian history. Can you see God's invisible hand? You'll recall at the end of chapter 2 that Mordecai overheard a conversation between two of the king's eunuchs. The talk was a plan to assassinate the king. Mordecai alerted Esther, who warned the king. And as the attendants read this account to the king, he wondered aloud, what did we do for Mordecai? Now, Persian kings were genuinely, generally meticulous about granting rewards for doing favors. It was a way to sort of make sure that they elicited favor from the people. And when he found out that Mordecai was not rewarded, he lurched forward to remedy the oversight. Now, we've seen through Esther that this king cannot and does not ever seem to think for himself. He needs advisors to tell him what to do and what to think. We've seen that in chapter 1. We see that all the way through to chapter 5. He doesn't do his own thinking. So it will be natural for the king to find out who he can get to do his thinking. So, verse 4, And the king said, Who is in the court? <laughs> now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him in. <laughs> so, Xerxes, who's unable to make up his own mind and always just parrots whatever his advisors recommends, has to lurch about or, 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 or throw, look around for an advisor to find a consultant that's close at hand. It just so happens that Haman was there early in the king's court. How ironic. As we've seen, we saw in chapter 5, Haman wanted to appear before the king to kill Mordecai. The king wants Haman to appear before him so they might honor Mordecai. Friends, this is called irony. If you wonder what, the, what, what in literature if someone says something's ironic, this is the height of irony. And what happens next is right out of like a sitcom, kind of an I Love Lucy misunderstanding. It's a series of funny misunderstandings. Haman thinks the king is planning on honoring him while the king is thinking of Mordecai. And this is pure theater right here. Verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> so one thing you should know is that it is exceedingly rare in the whole Bible for, a, for the reader to be privy to the thoughts of a character. It's very rare do we ever read, and he said or she said to herself or himself. 
Verse 6, right here, is the only place we understand or get that internal dialogue from Haman. And surprise, surprise, Haman's thoughts are focused on Haman. And so when the king says, who's worthy of honor, what should I do for him? All of his responses are going to be what he wants or what he would have requested from the king. Because, remind you, he doesn't recognize or know that the king is planning to honor Mordecai. And so Haman's like, all right, I'm going to throw open all of my desires and lay them before the king. Verse 7. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Which is what Haman wants. Then the king said to Haman, verse 10, Hurry! Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing out that you have mentioned. <laughs> this is comedy right here, even though y'all aren't laughing. What did Haman want? Haman wanted to be king for the day. But remember, remember, he's, he hates Mordecai. More than that, he wanted the people of the city of Susa to see him to be honored like royalty. He wanted the people to see him riding on the king's horse, wearing the king's crown, wearing the king's robes, being paraded around before everyone as the unique person that the king delighted to honor. Haman wanted a resounding public display of royal approval. And so when the king said, all of these things you said, do all these things for Mordecai the Jew. Can you imagine the confusion? Can you imagine the expression on his face? Can you imagine his heart sinking? All of the above happened. But ever the loyal servant, Haman does all the king commanded for Mordecai. And the reversal intensifies. Verse 11, so Haman took the robes of the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. <laughs> Remember, he built gallows to kill Mordecai. Do you think that's what he wanted to be saying? Then I love this. It's like no big deal to Mordecai. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. He had to work. Work doesn't get done where you're getting paraded around with royal robes and royal horses with the royal crown on your head. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. This is where I wish the narrator would have given us just a little bit more information. I would love to know how the conversation went when Haman went to get Mordecai. Remember, Mordecai refused to bow before Haman and show him respect. Haman was well aware of this, and Haman was filled with wrath, even at the, slight, even at the, the glance of Mordecai. 
We know that they hated each other, but yet in verse 11, all we read are the bare facts of what happened. We don't get, we don't get invited into the dialogue between the two. Maybe it's because it wasn't, it wasn't PG-13. I don't know. But we know that they hated each other. And <laughs> I can imagine Mordecai saying, some, Mordecai saying something like this. Na, 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 na. Haman didn't take it well. He's publicly humiliated. He's parading around his greatest enemy, proclaiming, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And you're a bystander in the city square. You see Mordecai go by and you go, okay, well, that's the model citizen that I should shoot for, not the guy pulling the horse, which was exactly the opposite of what Haman wanted. Pride comes before the fall, and here's the beginning of his fall. How confusing it would have been for the people in the square that day in Susa. They knew, word surely had gotten around, that the Haman was building the gallows for Mordecai, but as they look up and watch the evening news, they see Mordecai being led around by Haman, and Haman honoring Mordecai, and they think, what in the world is happening? What is going on? I'm sure the pair got seriously strange looks. After this display is complete, Mordecai went back to work like nothing. Haman went home with his tail between his legs. Now you'll remember at the end of chapter 5, when Haman exited the feast with Esther and the king, he was very, he was flying high, then he sees Mordecai, then he gets angry, then he calls his wife Zeresh, and his friends, and says, hey, what should I do? They say, build a gallows 75 foot high and hang him from there, Mordecai. So he calls his same friends and his same wife around him, and we read this in verse 13. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends, everything that happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. Now, where was this council yesterday? That's what I'd be wondering. What the heck? I don't know if it's like this with you, but sometimes in marriages between a husband and a wife, there is, there is hardship when it comes to communication. And maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. But there are times when I say something that's in, that I think is completely clear that is not received as completely clear from my wife and vice versa. Usually with me, it's like, oh, you wanted me to do that now. Oh, I thought it was eventually. But here, we have a complete reversal, another complete reversal. This is not a lack of communication. Like, I, if, I were more, if I were Haman, I'd be saying, why didn't you tell me this before? You knew he was Jewish. You knew he was, he was of David's line. Why are you telling me, basically, you got no hope, you're dead. You're going to fall, just give up. This same crowd said, build gallows. Then they say, well... Guess it's not going to work out. Easy come, easy go. 
Notice the reason she gives. If Mordecai, here's the reason, before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, literally, literally, that she says, is of the seed of the Jews, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. This is what she's saying. God is protecting his people here. And even in this moment, Haman could have opportunity to go and repent and change course, but he doesn't. His plan to kill Mordecai was thwarted. He was humiliated before the whole city of Susa. His wife basically said, you're a walking dead man. He doesn't say, what am I doing? But steeped in pride, he keeps going down the same path. Those who are steeped in pride won't refu- will, will refuse to listen to people even if they're all saying, even if a crowd of people is all saying the same thing. God had promised, it's instructive to note that she references the seed of the Jews. God had promised to bless the whole world through the seed of the Jews. And Paul explains that promise most directly in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Another way to translate that is seed. It does not say and to offsprings or seeds, referring to the many, but referring to one and to your offspring or seed who is Christ. At the time of Esther 6, the birth of Christ stood centuries in the future, but the promised one would come from the nation of Israel. And in a real sense, Zeresh speaks to more than she knows. That seed, that offspring, promised from the line of Abraham could not be stopped, not by Haman, not by Herod, not by Satan, not by anyone. The offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, would come and there would be no possibility that someone like Haman could stop it. And so while they're talking, remember Esther in chapter 5 invited the king and Haman again to another feast. The next feast is ready. And so while they're communicating, you're a dead man, we read this in verse 14. While they were talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now he might have thought, well... My day was bad, but at least I get to eat with the royal couple. Mordecai's not going to be there with his obnoxious robes and crown. But little did he know that this was his last meal. Haman would die after this next feast. And his fall is foreshadowed here in Esther chapter 6. And we said at the beginning that this chapter is all about reversal. The means of rescue in the Christian life is often by reversal. Let's notice two things in our remaining time. Here, in chapter 6, it is the Lord alone who rescues. It is the Lord alone who does the rescuing. As good as Esther's plan is, the Lord is the one and the only one doing the rescuing of the people of God here. He advances the reversal farther than Esther could have dreamed. He rescues by means of reversal 
And that reversal starts with the king having a sleepless night. Notice in chapter 4, when Mordecai speaks to Esther and says, go before the king and advocate for your people, he doesn't say, and between the two feasts, you'll find that the king is going to have a sleepless night. She doesn't know that. She can't know that. But yet, here we have the sleepless night of a king leading to a complete and total reversal first with Haman and Mordecai, and eventually with the people of God. They will be rescued by this dramatic reversal. So often through the Scriptures, what we find is the means of rescue for God's people comes by an unexpected reversal of fortunes. The means of rescue for God's people is brought about by an unexpected reversal of fortunes. And this story of reversal is stitched throughout the whole Bible. Abraham, here's a couple examples. Abraham, a childless elderly man, becomes the father of many nations. Reversal. Jacob, a conniving scoundrel, becomes Israel, the father of the twelve tribes. A reversal. Israel, an enslaved people, are led through the waters that would destroy their captors, Egypt, as they pursue a reversal. David, the unimpressive shepherd, to Samuel at least, is anointed king, an unexpected reversal. That same David slew the giant Goliath with a rock from his sling, an unexpected reversal. Daniel, the faithful, was lowered into the lion's lair only to come out alive, the reversal again. Esther, the somewhat compromised queen, is the means of her people's salvation. Again, another reversal. But the most dramatic reversal, the most dramatic reversal that we see in the Scriptures is not found in the book of Esther. It's evidenced in the life and death of Jesus Christ. It is here we find the most dramatic rescue by reversal in the whole of the Scriptures and in the whole of humankind, human history. No one expected that the murder of the Son of God, who is God the Son, would be the means of sinners' rescue. More than that, Jesus, whose hands and feet were affixed on that Roman cross, Paul tells us that when his hands and feet were affixed to that cross, our sins were nailed upon that cross as well. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says this, And you, that's plural, all of you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that him is Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set it aside. How did he set it aside? It's like this. He nailed it to the cross. In other words, the punishment we deserved was canceled because Jesus died upon that cross and rose from that tomb. The legal demands for justice, have been satisfied by God Most High. Friends, that is a reversal. There is no other story or tale that says the leader must die and take the place of the people and then rise again. And in dying, he takes upon himself the legal demands for justice that he only he and only he could pay. Friends, we as Christians, we are guilty before the Lord, before we put our faith in Him. We were guilty before the Lord, and there was no advocate for us who could get us off. 
But here's where Jesus steps forward. And think of this sweet reversal that we have in Jesus Christ. What did he do? He canceled, what does it say in Colossians 2? He cancels the record of our sins. Our sins are not imaginary. They're not make-believe. They're real. The guilt for those sins is not imaginary or make-believe. It's real. The shame associated with that guilt is real and justified. How real is the record of our sins? So real that all of my many sins, all of your many sins, have been recorded in a book much like the Chronicles that we read, we read about in Esther chapter 6. Except these aren't the Chronicles of Great Deeds. These are the Chronicles of Bad Ones. All of our many sins, what verse 14 in, in Colossians chapter 2 calls our record of debt. All of them are recorded and written down. And that record shouts guilty. All of humanity is guilty. And along with this guilt comes legal demands. There is a record of debt that stands against us all, recorded in excruciating detail. Nothing is missed. Every word spoken in anger, every thought baked in lust, every unspoken bitterness, every unsavory action, every vain imagination, every hidden motive. If you knew a document like that about you existed, what would you do? Well, you'd want to get that document and hide it. Make sure it never saw the light of day. You'd want to make sure that it wouldn't fall into the wrong hands. You'd hide that document away in some dark corner that no one but you knew about. You would lock it away. But the problem is, hiding the record doesn't make the record false. And this is why it's so important to note the reversal that Jesus has won for us. What did he do? He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He canceled that record. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He canceled your record of debt. The record of all of your wrongdoing was destroyed along with Jesus on the cross. Friend, if you're a Christian... You have a record of debt that is now destroyed. That's a reversal much better than Esther chapter 6. And it's not a make-believe reversal, just like, hey, I'll take that and you can just throw it away and not worry about it. No. In every detail, our record of debt was brought into the light And Jesus took that record upon himself and died. We were rescued by the reversal that we didn't anticipate. Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, stepped forward to pay our sins. And the record of those sins, because Jesus died and rose again, is completely obliterated. The record of your wrongs are gone. 
Justice demands that we die for our sins, but Jesus died in our place. Friends, it's not as if the evidence against us is make-believe. It's real, but it's just been destroyed. This doesn't mean that our sins were magically turned into not sins. They were real. They are real, but the record of them for those that are in Christ are gone. What is destroyed is not your sins, but the record of your sins. It's not that you never sinned. It's that Jesus has taken your record and made it his and died in your place. That is the sweetest rescue by reversal. And he did it all by himself. He did it much more significant than a sleepless night. Oh, believe me, there was a sleepless night involved, though. Before he hung on that tree, he had a sleepless night of prayer, pleading before the Father. But he stepped forward in obedience so that our record of debt might be obliterated along with him. If you're here and you don't follow Jesus, as Christians, you need to know this about us as Christians. We're not any different than you. We've fallen short. We sin. We still fight against sin. We sin in embarrassing ways. We sin in open ways and secret ways. The difference between us and you is not that we're better or smarter, but we have a Savior. We have put our faith in Jesus Christ, the one and the only one who can obliterate our record of sin. He can obliterate yours too. You don't have to be a special person to come to Jesus. You just need to be willing to lay before him your record of sins and let him, as you put faith in him, let him become your savior. If you're not a Christian and you're here, I would really encourage you to talk to somebody who you know is a Christian and ask them to walk you through the good news of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just simply this, Jesus died in the place of sinners so that any who believe in him might have eternal life that begins in this life and goes on for all eternity. That's available to everyone. For those of us that are Christians, he did the rescuing. He did it all. That's why we as exiles must focus on Jesus Christ. He is our life. He is our focus. He is our all. He is our hope. He is the one who's taken our record of debt, and he has destroyed it. And in him, all of the promises of God for us are yes and amen. And without him, we have nothing. By this reversal, this rescue by reversal, we are now, those, though we are sinners, we are beloved saints. When we were orphans, now we're sons and daughters of the God Most High. 
When we face eternal death, now we have life eternal. Where we once had fear, now we have every reason to hope. Where we once faced punishment, now we can experience eternal blessing. Where we once were alone, now we have Christ with us, the hope of glory, and He promises never to leave us or forsake us, but to be with us always, even to the end of the age. We exiles living far from home have been rescued by a wonderful reversal. The Lord does the saving. The Lord does the rescuing all alone. Secondly, and lastly, the Lord often works quietly in the lives of His people. The Lord often works quietly in the lives of His people. Just like every other chapter in Esther, the Lord's name is not referenced in Esther chapter 6. But make no mistake, He's at work you can be sure that he caused the king's sleepless night. You can be confident that the Lord arranged the book of memorable deeds to be read. You can rest assured that all the sections of the deed in his decade-plus reign, of all of them, the Lord caused Mordecai's episode to stick out. And then you can be further, further assured that it bothered, the Lord caused Haman, or Mordecai's unrewarded un, un, uh, deed to bother Xerxes. And you can know for sure that Haman jumped, got there early so that he could get a jump on the day and Mordecai. But the Lord got the jump on Haman. See, if you read chapter 6, it looks like these are all mundane events that don't have any significance. But the Lord does most of his work quietly. The reason I think Esther is one of the most timely books for our lives as exiles is because we don't often see the obviously miraculous. We as saints, as exiles, living far from home, experience the quiet work of the Lord in seemingly mundane parts of our lives in ways we often, maybe mostly, don't recognize. It's way too easy to assume that because we cannot see evidence of His work in the way that we were expecting, then He's not working. False. False. Just because the Lord works in the so-called small moments of our lives, does not mean he's small. He shows his might by doing what we did not expect, often when we don't notice it. The Lord advances his kingdom and his purposes in his people, often with things like sleepless nights and the random opening of a book. The Lord, friend, if you're a Christian, the Lord is getting things done in and through you that you can't see and you don't expect. The Lord is not limited by our powers of perception. So think about that thing that's looming in your life as the biggest problem. What is it? Sometimes we can think that <clears throat> the Lord 
for him to really show his presence and for him to really show himself to be powerful, he should take that thing away. Miraculously, be it a disappointment, be it a diagnosis, be it a wayward child, be it financial troubles, whatever the case is. But oftentimes what the Lord does is as we face that trial and that hardship, is that he gives us strength to endure that trial and hardship, working in us and through us in ways that we did not expect and we would not experience if we did not have that trial and hardship. I have no idea all the things that the Lord is doing in and through the small moments of your life and my life and your days and my days. I can tell you this. He's not wasting one second. Just because you can't tell doesn't mean it's not happening. John Piper famously said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. I think me, I'm aware of one. Take heart. Not so much that Xerxes had a sleepless night, but your God is working in your life in ways you can't perceive. And there may be a reversal coming, but we do know for sure the ultimate reversal has come and we have been rescued from death to life. So what I'm going to do as we pray and pray together, I'm going to pray for those of you who just don't sense God's hand in your life at all. And I'm going to pray for a reversal. I'm going to pray that we would see the hand of the Lord working in our lives in surprising and invigorating ways. I'm going to pray that we would be a people who recognize that the most important reversal, that of Jesus dying in our place and rising for our justification, that that reversal would loom largest and that we would be most grateful for that one, but also that that reversal would give us hope and faith for other smaller reversals in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, one of the things that is so encouraging about you is that I don't have to inform you of all the problems that came in on people's backs this morning. You know. Lord, and I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for me, Lord, that you would help us to be a people who look to you, Lord. I pray that we would be a people who are grateful for the fact that you have died for our sins, that you have, that you have taken the record of debt that we that deserved eternal punishment, that you've taken that and you've destroyed it along with your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for that great and grand reversal. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who look for other reversals in our lives. I pray for those that are in financial trouble. I pray for those that are discouraged. I pray for those that have a looming 
like medical diagnosis that is dominating the horizon. I pray for those who have children that have wandered away or are not interested in the Lord. I pray for those who are just lonely. I pray for those who, who maybe just have, have a sense of heaviness about everything in their life. I pray for those that feel hopeless, Lord. I pray that, I pray that you would help us to have just an abiding faith and a belief that you work in the small things in our lives. And just because we can't see what you're doing doesn't mean that you're not working. And so, Lord, I pray for grand and significant reversals in all the areas that we see in our lives that are discouraging and disappointing. I pray for those relational situations that we think that can never be fixed. I pray for those regrets and those disappointments that we think that can never be remedied. I pray that you would help us to be a people who look to what you've already done for us in Jesus and argue that if you can do that, how much more can you do for us? How much more willing are you, are you, are you to, to meet us in the small everyday moments of our lives? And so, Lord, I pray. I pray for things to be engineered by your sovereign, strong hand so that we might see reversals, dramatic reversals. I pray for children to come to you. I pray for jobs. I pray for marriages to be knit back together. I pray for healing. I pray for the clouds to part for those that are discouraged. I pray for those that are carrying burdens of their own failure, Lord. I pray that they would be able to put that upon you. Thank you that you are not limited by the power of our perception. Just as we could never come up with the plan of the gospel, never in a million years, just as we would never expect the God-man to die in our place, Lord, may you do more than we ask or imagine, knowing that you're the God who delights in rescue by reversal to do what we did not expect. In your name we pray. Amen.